Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 106th episode, it's the return of Dan Mulcairin. Along the way, we discuss how Secret Wars was the original Smash fiction, how it's a really bad idea to promise Spider-Man free hot dogs for life, and how bok choy is for closers. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. If I'm crazy, I'm on my own. If I'm waiting, it's on my throne. If I sound lazy, just ignore my tone. Cause I'm always gonna answer when you call my phone. Like, what's up, danger? Like, what's up, danger? Can't stop me now! All right, Dan. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Oh, I forgot about this part. I've already been on this once. You'd think I'd recall some some of this stuff. Hello, I'm Dan Mulcairin. I prepare very poorly. I am the now erstwhile host of the Smash Fiction podcast and am the current editor and star, question mark, of the Garden Plots with Skeletor podcast. I don't know. I'm a beautiful and unique snowflake because I kind of do a Skeletor voice and talk about flowers, which I feel like is a thing that maybe only three people in history have ever done. (laughs) It puts you in very rarefied air. I like to think so. There was something I noticed, though, when we were planning this return episode. I went back and listened to your original episode way back when you were on the show back on episode... I should have prepared for this, too, before I said anything. I think it was in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was, yeah. Hang on, I'll scroll way back. Yes, episode 53, so in September 2017, a world that seems many, many times away. Yeah. What I noticed, Dan, and this was a very tricky thing you did, in an episode of Pod, where it's theoretically about you, you managed to turn things around and have me talk for most of the episode, you (laughs) devious bastard. Yeah, I... Oh, man. I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of people in the world who are like me, who are very willing to make their opinions heard. And I've been trying to default away from that. I've been trying to default more towards like listening to other people. So my apologies if I completely subverted the entire concept of this podcast. <laughs> but no, it was something that we were talking about a little bit, kind of being a someone who's used to working a room or, you know, networking and stuff like that. But yeah, I noticed it very quickly in listening back. And I went, huh. We didn't really talk about Dan much. So I will, in fact, turn the topic around to you because I don't know if you know this, but you have been part of a project that's been going back quite a ways, a rather prolific project that has had many spinoffs and many episodes where a lot of bold statements about things like Doom were said. (laughs) And so with that coming to a close, how are you going to look back on this chapter of your life? (sighs) This closing of Smash Fiction as the big book at the end of... I was going to think of another example, but all I can picture is the closing of the book of the Viewisk universe at the end of... Yeah, sure. 
That works with Alanis Morissette picking it up and picking up the Smash Fiction book and walking off. Yeah, that's the one. Except it'll be yeah. Stitch in this case. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely going to be Stitch or Doom, as we mentioned. <laughs> you know, Smash Fiction was a very interesting experiment for me. I'd been listening to a lot of podcasts, but had never actually done any before. I hadn't really done any serious vocal-centric stuff. I had really just kind of like dipped my toe into some very minor voice acting before then. But, you know, I was a fan of podcasts, and a couple of my friends, Miles and Liz, had at various points come to me saying that they wanted to do a podcast. They didn't have anything beyond that. No, like you know, main concept for what it would be or schedule or any kind of specifics, just a general desire to create. And it was just, you know, I was hanging out with Liz one evening at my apartment and we came up with this idea to like do a show where we debate which fictional characters would win under certain circumstances, either a, a straight fight or some other type of contest. And then I let Miles know and then we roped in Kit, my wife and my sister Claire and yeah, we just kind of like threw everything together. It was this weird experiment that was just a bunch of like first time amateurs. I think only Miles had ever really seriously podcasted before that. But we just sort of took a wild running leap into things. You know, we planned out a format and just kind of figured things out as we went. And then I like look back and it's kind of like I hang glided over the Grand Canyon with something I put together out of like bits of cactus I had found on the other side. Where was the point? Because I've listened to those early episodes. I have, in fact, listened to every episode of Smash Fiction. Oh, you're a bold person, sir. Even back to the ones where there wasn't even a lightning round. Who was the first one to say aloud, hey, we've kind of got something here. We've got lightning in a bottle a little bit. I don't know who the first among us was, but I just remember we recorded the first episode, which was Terminator versus Predator. When we finished recording it, there was just kind of like a feeling of elation. We were just like, that was really fun. We produced some really interesting content. We were all just really eager to immediately jump on the next one. I remember at one point, Liz even floated the suggestion of us recording more than one a week, which <laughs> is a ridiculous thing to suggest. But at the time, it was clear to us early on, I think, that we had semi-inadvertently created something that was really compelling and that produced really interesting content. It was very draining to do after a very long period of time because it required a great deal of preparation, but the draw of it became pretty immediately apparent once we got into it, you know, once we moved from theory into practice. Okay. And also, I know from my being part of the fan faction and such, that such a big community has built around this. When did you start to realize that there was this sort of particle effect cloud around the work that you were doing that was receiving what you were doing in this way? It was interesting. A lot of the fans that we have came about because of ads that we put out, but not all of them were. A lot of them just sort of stumbled upon us randomly, essentially. I remember many fans came to us just because they were looking for podcasts that were about fictional IP that they were interested in or a character that they were interested in. And they would be like, oh, like I'm interested in World of Warcraft. And oh, they did this episode about the Lich King. Let's hear that. And then they would listen to us and, you know, sort of branch out from there. And it was just so interesting because there wasn't any one entry point for everyone. Everyone was sort of coming at us from these different angles because we very purposefully and mindfully tried to 
be as diverse in our media choices as we could. If we did an episode that involved anime characters, we would then try to do an episode about video game characters or TV characters or comic book characters. And so it was just very interesting seeing the different trajectories that people were finding us from. Our initial fan base was a lot from the Unspoiled podcast, which Miles had been involved with, and he would talk about us on the show, and so we would get a lot of that. But then people would just sort of be drawn into us because we'd be talking about various things that they were interested in, and then they became interested in us, and then through us they would get interested in stuff that they had never heard before. And that was kind of the way it was for us, too, to some extent. One of us would, like, pitch a match idea that involved characters that really only one or two of us were familiar with or were from properties that only one or two of us were familiar with. And so throughout the show, it was a process of us as hosts really broadening what media we were into and discovering these things that we had never really looked into before. And that was a journey that we got to go on with our fans. And that was a really interesting experience for all of us to draw in this very diverse group of listeners who then got to go on the journey with us. You hit on something there where often for an episode, you know, a good half of the podcast will not have known a character beforehand and so are going into it fairly fresh. They would have done a ton of research because you're all research monsters. But that, I think, made an episode with a character that I may not have known made it an easy sell for me because what I find is a really difficult sell is a podcast where everyone on the podcast is an expert on a thing and you're not yeah because it becomes this kind of speaking in code i've noticed that with some wrestling podcasts that i have listened to where i know i know what's going on but i know i could never give that to some of my friends who are relatively neophyte wrestling fans because they would just be at sea the entire time so hearing someone who was saying like, look, I've done a bunch of research on this person. This is wild. I had no idea of any of this, but it gives the alternative to, oh, well, this is just an expert who knows everything and you're an idiot who knows nothing. It's this weird kind of middle ground. And I know, for example, like I never made it past the first book of the Dark Tower series, but hearing Miles talk about his love and occasional gripes with that series has made me a lot more interested to go. And at some point, you know, when I have all the time in the world, hint, hint, rest of the world, leave me alone. <laughs> I will go back and actually read those things, apart from just reading the first one and going, eh, that's not for me. Okay, look, man, you're the one who started this podcast. Like, if your free time's <laughs> getting eaten up, there's only so much blame you can shift on the wider world. But your point is well taken. I'm pointing the blame entirely at the small human who follows me around most of the day. <laughs> that is also true. Which, again, yeah, maybe you have some valid points. <laughs> but... <laughs> I agree with you. I listen to a lot of podcasts where someone will make a reference to the anti-monitor or whatever, and I'll be like, oh yeah, I get that. But I understand that a huge portion of casual listeners would not. And I think that that's a benefit. When you do a show like ours, which is primarily argument-based, you are putting together an argument. You have to include a lot of facts as the basis for your argument, which then means you kind of start introducing a character. I like to think that if you go back and listen to Smash Fiction, even if you pick up an episode where you don't know one or both or all of the characters, I like to think that we present them in such a way that you can get to know them over the course of the episode and maybe become interested in the source material. Discover something that you might have otherwise overlooked or not been particularly interested in. Yeah, like, for example, I now know who Morden Solis is. And mm -hmm. also, I can name off several planeswalkers. Dan Mulcairn, 
Thank hey, you. Man. <laughs> having never ever played Magic the Gathering before. Oh, you should. And I've never <laughs> my D&D interest is very thin, so all of this stuff I now have a reference point. There's something in Going Postal which is a Terry Pratchett book that I adore. The talent of learning just enough about something that you can have a conversation with someone else and make like you know what you're talking about. Smash Fiction is very good for that. Yeah. Because I've been able to carry on conversations about things like Mass Effect and Magic the Gathering and stuff like that just from what I gleaned from, okay, well, this is the information I'm provided. These are the jokes that can be made about this. This is how ridiculous this particular setting is. And I can get by. I want an honest answer from you here because I'm genuinely curious. All right. Are you any more interested in Mass Effect or Magic the Gathering having heard those episodes? I am, but... See, I also know that both of those are media that have a huge time investment involved in them. Yes. And so, for example, I'm probably not going to go and get the first Mass Effect game and play it all the way through. Sure. But based on the information I have, I would have the interest in, for example, you know, scrolling through a TV Tropes page or looking through a wiki about a few things that would generate that interest. And again, my particular situation is not everyone's situation, but were I in a different one, I would definitely see myself going, oh, I might pick up, you know, one of the later Mass Effect games having read a recap of the earlier ones, you know? For Mass Effect's Specifically, you want to start with the first one because it is one story. It's not like Final Fantasy where you can just jump in anywhere and be fine. (laughs) But that's good. I'm glad that at the very least, you're willing to dip your toe in something that you otherwise would not have considered. That's a lot of what we were trying to do is get a lot of conversations going around a lot of different types of characters and different types of stories. So when you were initially pitching episodes, who were sort of your holy grail of characters that you desperately wanted to talk about? Oh, man. Me personally, my favorite fictional character is Spider-Man. Let me tell you, coming up with a good match for Spider-Man was a lot harder than you might think. I can see how it would be, yeah. As evidenced by the fact that we did not get to him until episode, I think, 146 or thereabouts. Because it's one thing to pit a character up against someone who has a similar power set. You also have to consider things like how popular they are and the pop culture space that they occupy has to share a certain amount of ground and the other thing is that when you construct a match you have to be okay with either side winning i remember we got a suggestion from a fan where one of the characters in it was mecha hitler from wolfenstein (sighs) and it's the sort of thing where we were like i don't know if anyone would want to advocate for this character and also no one would be okay with this character winning Right? Like, if the judge came back and said, guys, I'm just going off of the argument, and I think that this character won, there's a certain alchemy that has to go into building a Smash Fiction match. And so, like, that was why it was so hard to find a match for Spider-Man, because he's really well-known, he's really well-loved, he has a combination of powers that are not especially common outside of, like, you know, Marvel. It took us a long time before we were able to find someone that we felt comfortable putting him up against. So that was my particular holy grail. I know that all of the hosts had their own characters that they were really wanting to shoot for. Like, Claire, for the longest time, really wanted a match with a Digimon character, really (laughs) wanted a match with Steven Universe. I know Miles, for a long time, wanted a match with Tulip O'Hare from Preacher. We all kind of had characters that we were waving flags for, and I think, by and large, most of us got in our major kind of bucket list matches that we wanted by the end of it. I still remember that Digimon episode and how angry Miles got. It was really funny. (laughs) 
I mean, to be fair, that is one of his go-to responses about a great many things. So, you know. <laughs> well, let's dig a little deeper into Spider-Man for a minute. So, because I can't remember. How old are you? I am 34. Okay. So, what would have been your first experience? Would it have been the cartoon in the 90s? Would it have been... Like the comic books? Like, where did you step in with Spider-Man? Let me think. You know, it was probably the 1960s cartoon, to be honest. Was it the 60s or the 70s? It was the 60s, yeah. The one that had the theme song. Yes. I remember getting a lot of those on VHS, which is weird. Last time I was on Math of You, one of the things we talked about extensively was going to the video store. And one of the videos I would pick up alongside He-Man and Thundercats were those old Spider-Man cartoons. So it was that cartoon and also the one... That came a little later. I think it was like late 70s or early 80s. I think it might have been the cartoon that predated Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Okay. It was around the same time. Those, I feel like, were probably what introduced me to Spider-Man. Around that time, my uncle would also buy packages of trading cards and just, like, give them to me. For a little bit, he gave me baseball cards because that was what he liked to collect as a kid. But I was very clearly not interested in baseball. And so he just started buying me trading cards of comic book stuff. He would buy, you know, like uh, Marvel trading cards or DC trading cards or whatever. And so that was how I got introduced to a lot of the comic book characters that I would eventually grow to love. Like, I remember being fascinated by Darkhawk when I was a kid. (laughs) A fascination which continues to this very day. That was how I got to know Spider-Man and a lot of his supporting cast were through these trading cards that I collected. And so, yeah, when the animated series hit in the 90s, I was primed for it. I was absolutely ready for some more Spider-Man content. And the thing about those animated series episodes, as with a lot of those animated series that were coming out in the 90s, because they were incredibly episodic, you had to have lots of villains, you had to have lots of supporting cast. And while a lot of their origins were rewritten, I'm looking at you, Alistair Smythe, right. there was so much to that universe and so much to pull from that as a kid, you can be like, oh, I remember that guy because that guy was, you know, when Morbius actually becomes a vampire, you can remember from when he was a supporting cast character in the first season. Oh, yeah. I mean, Felicia Hardy, I think, appears in like the first episode, like yeah. way before she becomes Black Cat long time before and so it rewards the repeat watch in a way that something with a less deep bench of characters wouldn't do and so what i would do when i was watching it because i was about i think about 13 when it was coming out or a little a little younger maybe is that there was a comic book shop up the road from my dad's work and so i would go in there and just read stuff off the shelves until they kicked me out oh yeah and of course again it being i think it would have been about 94 95 i was taking what i knew and then going and looking for more things and then from that would build on other stuff and so that's for all that people will talk about you know comic books being an incredibly daunting medium and they are one of the things is that if you go digging there's always more Oh, yeah. I mean, you're not going to run out of comic book stories anytime soon, for sure. And you know, it's interesting. I actually feel like the way I was introduced to comic books, weirdly enough, is I was collecting all of these disparate characters as trading cards and learning about them. And so, you know, I'd have a card about like the Hulk or Captain America or Black Widow or whoever. And I'd be like, oh, man, I really like all of these characters. They're all really cool. And then at some point I learned about the event comic from 1984, Secret Wars, Uh, which was billed as, like, the big Marvel crossover. Like, they hadn't really done anything like that up till then. Like, Contest of Champions was a little earlier, but it was a very different type of story. This was, like, 
big epic crossover. And when I learned that there was a story that had all the characters in it, that changed my worldview. A lot of what I loved about Smash Fiction is that it's essentially a giant crossover. You know, you get to bring in all of these characters that would never meet and see what happens when they bounce off of each other. And I think that was when the seeds were planted for me for my love of crossovers, of telling stories where you get to mix universes and characters together in very unpredictable ways. It's funny that you mentioned Secret Wars specifically because that was specifically the intent of Secret Wars. It's, I'm taking the whole box of action figures and I'm dumping them out on the floor and I'm going to smash them together and see what happens. Yeah. And it sounds like you were like the target audience and accepted it in the exact way it was intended. Well, sort of. Secret Wars was explicitly designed to sell toys that they were selling at the time. And given that it came out the year before I was born, I was a a little (laughs) late for that but in terms of the actual story they were telling in the comic book i was absolutely there i remember going to my local comic shop very shortly after i learned that secret wars was a thing i went down to my local comic shop and i found every single issue of that story including the issue where spider-man gets his symbiote costume for the first time and i spent basically all of my allowance to get a complete run of Secret Wars. I think that was the first time I ever collected a complete run of one comic story. Ah. So at what point in this sort of burgeoning new hobby you had that I'm sure would consume a lot of your time in the future, at what point did Spider-Man become your guy? I feel like he was kind of always my guy, just kind of from the get-go. I really liked a lot of other characters, like for a long time, Hulk was one of my favorites. Also, Darkhawk, as previously mentioned, (laughs) held a very special place in my heart for a very long time. But I don't know, there was something I found so relatable about Peter Parker... I'm not going to be treading any new ground with this revelation. You know, we were talking about the intended experience of Secret Wars. This is the intended experience of Peter Parker, is this character who tries really, really hard all the time and can never afford to stop trying. There's just that feeling that he can succeed and succeed and never quite get everything that he wants, but still feels an overwhelming sense of obligation to keep trying nonetheless. I had this revelation recently that Peter Parker looks up to Steve Rogers, but Steve Rogers feels like Peter Parker. You know, like in his heart of hearts, even someone like Captain America still feels like a Peter Parker. You know, it's the struggle that we all feel like we're going through. But Spider-Man's the one character who like wears that struggle on his sleeve, you know, for whom it is a textual experience of his life that we get to walk with him. I just find that to be so intensely relatable. It's funny because he started being Spider-Man when he was 15. And due to the intricacies of the Marvel sliding timescale, I have put his age currently at being in about his early 30s. I think Marvel would probably say he's a little younger. I feel like he's on about the same journey that I'm in right now. So, like, Spider-Man is absolutely a character that I can feel like I have grown up with. Having read his early stuff, proceeded through, like, his college years and his early adult years, and now he's kind of settling-ish into an adult life, I'm like, I'm right there with you, I totally get what you're going through. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I think part of what's so lasting about the character is it's something where both him as a hero and him as a person is actually something you can slot into just about any situation. Spider-Man is a hero. You can have Spider-Man going on globetrotting adventures or working with a team of other superheroes or fighting a cosmic threat or dealing with muggers and bank robbers or dealing with personal drama or any of that. 
Like any of that stuff works with that character. That character is like a piece of silly putty. You know, you can put him into any shape and he will fit in. And I mean, you can do comedy, you can do tragedy, you can do slice of life. If you're Chip Zdarsky, you can write a little thing about a documentary film student wanting to do a documentary about Spider-Man and make a story that will tear my still beating heart out of my chest and leave it on oh, the yeah. table. That will draw tears from me like oh nothing else can. He's a lot like Batman in that way. You know, both Spider-Man and Batman, I think, are often characterized as more street-level heroes. You know, when you think about what they do, it's, you know, fighting muggers or low-level threats. But, like, I don't know how many times I've seen Spider-Man, like, kick Thanos in the face. It's just, like, (laughs) he can go anywhere. He can be in any story, including stories where he's not Spider-Man, and it still feels like a Spider-Man story. You know, an issue of just him being Peter Parker still feels like a Spider-Man story. He can be in anything. Absolutely, yeah. Even within the character, you can have him be funny and quippy. You can have him be emotionally wounded and fighting for things he loves. You can have you know him be downright scary at times. Like I remember like, I was talking to a friend about this, and he was like, oh, you know, because Spider-Man's always quipping and Spider-Man's fun. And I'm like, you know why Spider-Man's quipping? Because one, because he's scared inside, and so he's just kind of keeping up the banter to distract himself. But also, if you have him stop talking, he's a bug shape scuttling down a wall after you that is unstoppable oh yeah isn't that terrifying but of course it's only in rare occasions is it because he's still peter parker he's still spider-man speaking of relatability a character who constantly makes jokes because he's secretly terrified of the world around him yeah i find (laughs) that intensely relatable What's that thing? It's like, uh, I am in this picture and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But, you know, you're absolutely right about the scariness aspect. He's a character who, like, clings to the wall and often, like, looks out of the shadows with these giant eyes. And he fights characters like Carnage or, like, Morbius. He fights these really dark and evil beings and gets into some really dark stories. I mean, Craven's Last Hunt, that is a dark-ass storyline where he gets buried yeah. alive. Like, yeah. these are the sorts of stories we think of when we think of Spider-Man. <laughs> that it involves a naked craven walking into a room full of spiders. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, <laughs> decisions were made. Mistakes were made. <laughs> it also helps that Ryan North's Craven the Hunter, as he appears in Squirrel Girl, has completely influenced all previous takes on that character for oh, me. Oh, yeah, for sure. Bilka. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder what it is. Like, actually, no, I don't wonder. I think I know. And I think it's that applicability of the Spider-Man character that has kept the series going. Like, when did it start? I know it was in the 60s, but what year was it? You probably know. 63, 64, something like that. I don't remember 100%. Okay, so here we are in 2020, a year that still sounds fake. (laughs) So that is 56 years of a character, right? Mm -hmm. Where a character that has been in a you know, marginalized section of the line at one point, you know, only appearing in anthology books, and then also becoming the biggest thing on the line in the 90s, along with the X-Men, where there were, you know, eight different titles that went back and forth in the storylines where you'd have to buy eight different ones to realize what the hell actually happened in that storyline, which was so annoying. It was actually great when I was in the comic shop as a freeloader because I would just go, oh, it's continued in web of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number five. I think I saw that over there. Oh, here we go. Now I'll just keep going and see how this courtroom drama is going where Peter Parker is accused of killing someone. But in fact, it was his clone Kane who had done that. So I get to follow that story. But in a situation like this, where you've got this character that can do anything and has been big and small, keeping it continuing is it is both difficult, but also kind of the easiest thing. 
because there is always more Spider-Man stories to tell, you know? Yeah, I think where we see difficulties is when you have writers that like legitimately want to try a new thing and then the next writer wants to return to the status quo that they remember when they were reading Spider-Man and that's when you have him, you know, making a bargain with the devil to erase his marriage. <laughs> like Ay, ouch. Yeah, but I don't feel like that's a problem that's unique to Spider-Man. That's just kind of what happens when you're a comic book character with more than, say, 10 years of continuity under your belt. I don't know how many times I've seen the X-Men try to return to the Claremont days, because that's what everyone loves, and that's what everyone wants to read again. I think that just kind of comes with the territory. I feel like Peter's in kind of a unique situation, because he as a character has such a strong core, and because he's so flexible, you can put him, as we've mentioned in virtually any kind of environment, any kind of story, any kind of like backdrop, and he still feels like himself. Even when he was running a company not too long ago back in Dan Slott's run, even when he was like this like tech billionaire, he still felt like Peter Parker. He still felt like a kid from Queens who was trying to do his best with what he had. Even when he was significantly higher up than he had been, he didn't feel like a different character. Than yeah, yeah. And that's also why, and this is something where I'm kind of hamstrung by the fact that the latest Spider-Man movie that came out, Far From Home, I didn't love, but mm -hmm. I can tell you that every appearance up until then of the Tom Holland, Spider-Man, and Peter Parker felt true to me in a way that no film portrayal had felt before then. That was my Spider-Man, you know? Yeah, a character who loves being Spider-Man. That was something I don't think we had really seen. Certainly not on film. Spider-Man up till then had been all about just the angst of being Spider-Man. That wasn't absent from Tom Holland's Spider-Man, but there was just this joy to it. This, like, childlike glee to it, which I think comes from them making him a bit younger than Andrew Garfield or Tobey Maguire was, yeah. Yeah, although I still say Tobey Maguire fits very much a Ditko Spider-Man to me, where I was just, like, looking at some of the older ones and going, yeah, that fits, that 100% fits. I have little moments like this now where it's like, we've now had enough, like, we've had literally 20 years of comic book movies, right? Yeah. And so the initial joy of, wow, this is a thing I've seen in a comic book that I'm now seeing in real life, and oh, I recognize that. Isn't that cool? That's faded a little. Not completely, because I do still feel that occasionally, especially when it's like something minor that I notice. But where I get now is I look for little moments that feel like character truths for me. The only two examples I can come up with off the top of my head are in the first Deadpool movie, when he's in the back of the cab, for like two minutes and is bored and you see him playing with the windows and like getting gum stuck on things and like just all these little kind of comedy beats that are just left to sit and i'm just like yeah of course of course he would be an absolute menace to leave in the back seat of a car because he's like a kid who's had six pepsis Oh, yeah, for sure. Just like, no, I don't want to sit still. I want to play with the thing. I'm going to press the button. I'm going to do... And, and like, I was cackling in the theater to the point where people were turning around and looking at me. <laughs> but I also felt that way in Spider-Man Homecoming when Spider-Man webs the guy who's, like, breaking into a car. And it turns out that he has just locked his keys in his car. Right. And he, so he has just webbed up this harmless person. And what follows is that every person in the apartment building above him who is out on their balcony then starts either yelling at him, yelling at each other, arguing about the morality of what he's doing, arguing about grudges that go back 10 years. And he is just in the middle of it. And he is so baffled. He is just like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't, I'm just going to go. 
Yeah. And, oh my god, it like I hurt myself laughing in that scene because it's also an extremely New York scene. Oh, it's super New York. And Spider-Man at his core is such a New York hero, which I is another thing that I like about Tom Holland as the character. He puts just a little bit of that Queens accent in his in his voice, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, Spider-Man should definitely have a little bit of an accent." Yeah, and Spider-Man will definitely have the one bodega that he goes to for his fried sandwich in the morning. And it's that one for a reason, and he has strong feelings about that. There's a bit in that, the Chips and Darsky issue, I think it's 310, that we talked about earlier that made us cry, where Spider-Man saves a hot dog vendor. And in a moment of like euphoria, the hot dog vendor says, you can have free hot dogs for life. And then we cut to Spider-Man sitting on the umbrella, having what seems to be maybe his 50th hot dog in a row. Yeah, man. Over 50 days. And you can see the look on this vendor's face where he's like, I've made a terrible mistake. (laughs) It is the sort of decision that a person who grew up into adulthood being paid by J. Jonah Jameson would make. It's like, look, man, if I'm getting free food, I'm going to get free food. I need to stock up because I do not know what my next paycheck is going to look like. But also, I'm going to sit on the top of the thing and opine about how ketchup is the icing of hot dogs. Yep. <laughs> Just like, please go away. I'm uh, really sorry about this. Yeah, that's absolutely a Tom Holland Spider-Man move, for sure. You can just imagine Spider-Man having opinions on whether or not a hot dog counts as a sandwich. Oh, man. Ugh. I don't know how many times I've had that discussion with my friends in the last probably year or so. <laughs> that is a point of contention, to be sure. It's one of those things like cavemen versus astronauts where it's a smash fiction thing that comes into real life and you see either someone will like get galvanized by that question where they've clearly never had it before or you will see that exhaustion roll over them because they know they know what is coming. They have been here before and none of it is good. Yeah, everyone has an opinion about whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich, but more than that, everyone has an opinion about the question about whether a hot dog is a sandwich. Like, there is no one who's like, (laughs) I don't really have any strong feelings about that line of inquiry. It's, yes, it is pure, unfiltered rage or absolute exhaustion. You're absolutely right. (laughs) So I suppose we could take a moment to talk about your new project. Oh, sure. Now that we've talked about Spider-Man for 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, don't get me wrong, that's how I want to spend every podcast, and very well could. My new project is not, sadly and surprisingly, about Spider-Man. So, I want to know, because the thing is, you had done your Skeletor voice a little bit in various projects, but I want to know when it got to the point of being like, hey, you know what, let's do a podcast where it's not just a sort of ongoing comedy drama about Skeletor, but it's going to be an in-universe gardening show hosted by Skeletor and a long-suffering podcast producer. Yes. (laughs) Talk to me about the genesis of this. Well, the genesis lay purely in one of the two writers of the show and co-host of the Smash Fiction podcast, Megan Bob, who listeners of The Math of You will have recognized because she was not only on her own episode, she also interviewed Lucas. Megan Bob, also the host of the excellent NXT Wrestling Fan podcast, of which I have guested. Yes, absolutely. She wears a lot of hats. She's a wonderful and whimsical person. She has a lot of passions in life. To put it mildly. To put it mildly. (laughs) Big fan of cooking, big fan of tea, huge fan of romance and slash fiction and various other things. One of those things is gardening. And she also... 
because of work that we did on Smash Fiction, was exposed to the world of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe for the first time, basically ever. She had always assumed that, as she put it, He-Man was the boys' cartoon, and felt like she couldn't really watch it, or that it wasn't really made for her. And what she found watching it was a strange degree of love and affection and gentleness in that show. Because despite the fact that the main character is like this muscle-bound barbarian who carries a sword around, a lot of the episodes are about, like, coming to nonviolent solutions to problems or about, like, expressing your affection for people in your life. Particularly She-Ra is a lot about that, the uh, spinoff of Yeah. She also felt as though He-Man was unapologetically gay. Like, (laughs) the show as a whole had just a very queer kind of artistic and aesthetic style to it that she found deeply appealing. And so she really started getting into He-Man as a thing. And then in Smash Fiction, we did an actual play RPG called Extraordinary League, which was a giant crossover show where all of the characters in it were pre-existing fictional characters. And her character, Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter, established a deep and very unusual friendship with Skeletor, who I played as the GM. (laughs) And I think that her affection for Skeletor grew to such an extent that she would just start kind of thinking about what Skeletor was up to and things that he might be into. I'm not entirely sure how she concluded that a guy who lives in a place called the Hemisphere of Darkness or the Dark Hemisphere, where there's like just lava all over the place, why he specifically would be into gardening. But she became very interested in this idea that he was real into gardening and just kind of wanted to hear his thoughts on the subject. And so one day she just gets in touch with me and says that she and her friend Marissa had written several scripts for a few (laughs) episodes I love that it's just like, oh no, I don't, I just want to talk about this thing. Here, I have several perfect bound scripts ready to go. Yeah. Are you in or are you out? (laughs) That's basically when I entered. Last I heard, she was just sort of musing about Skeletor and gardening. Cut to, I don't know, a month or two later. And she just comes to me and says, hey, we have these scripts. Would you like to be Skeletor? (laughs) And of course, I read the scripts. And if you've listened to the show, you will understand why I immediately agreed to be a part of this wonderful project because she and Marissa are delightful writers. They are absolutely hilarious. And so at that point, I kind of sat down with the two of them. We were talking about what their idea was for it. You know, they were saying that they had some ideas that they wanted kind of like a narrative arc to the overall storyline that was going on kind of in the background of the podcast and so I like help them to flesh out the overall beats of the series you know like what we can expect on an episode by episode basis then that was kind of it we just started recording I've always said I don't know who this is for but they're going (laughs) to love it it's the internet man things are for everyone there's always someone I did not know going in if we were going to have an audience, but there are people who are deeply invested in this already. And we've only, at time of this recording, have released two episodes. So it's been really surprising and absolutely delightful to see people's responses to this show. What I specifically like, and the thing is, this is some in Marissa and Megan Bob's writing and some in your performance as well, is that I think, and the thing is, I watch a lot of renovation shows or home and garden shows or anything where there's a specialized trade and the show is meant to be giving you tips about that thing. Any expert 
no matter how benevolent, has within them a simmering core of self-righteousness and <laughs> rage that they're doing it right and other people are doing it wrong. Right. And where something like even a Property Brothers, which is about as affable and chill as you're going to get, or a This Old House, you know, there are situations where they are clearly speaking to the one fucking idiot in the audience who would want to do it a different way and what i love about skeletor is it's maybe in like the breath and the hesitation in there but skeletor brings that right to the surface he's skimming that cream off the top and making <laughs> that the text rather than the subtext some of you and i'm not going to say who would think that you would do this you idiot you absolute child how dare you i may even drop in the bit about how you are not prepared for bok choy because that level of i know what you're thinking you think you're doing great you're not doing great you suck or you wouldn't be here yeah (laughs) that entire bit from the first episode i think is so emblematic of the attitude of skeletor in this show where he's just like listen you've obviously underprepared it's the middle of January and you are coming to me saying that you want to plant all these things. Let me tell you something. If you start right now, you may be able to get one Brussels sprout, not sprouts, just one sprout. And don't even think that you're going to get bok choy. Bok choy is for those who have prepared. (laughs) Asian greens are for closers. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He definitely has some very strong opinions about gardening as he does about, I think a lot of things, you know, we were saying earlier that I'm the sort of person who, more just likes to listen and invite others to speak. Skeletor is very much the opposite of that. Yeah. I was talking to I was talking to my friend Alex about this, and we were reminiscing about a party he had had at his house. Alex is someone who has his hand in a lot of disparate friend groups, and so when those groups come together, it's kind of interesting to see this is a friend from this group and a friend from this group, and let's see how they get along. And this is going to sound cruel, but I want, to, I want to say it with the exact... This is one of those narcissism of small differences moments. Have you ever met someone in your life where you look at them and they're close enough to you that you can see that kind of similarity, but they are somehow also everything you hate? Yes. Relatively recently encountered just such a person at a friend's party, as it turns out. (laughs) There you go. It's like this guy that I remember, and I spoke to Alex about this, so if he's listening, he'll understand. At one point talking about an author and how an author does things, glanced at a shelf, saw there was a book by that author, plucked that book from the shelf, and began to read to the person that he was speaking to a passage that illustrated his point. Mm. And in that moment, I said in my head to myself, look, I ain't perfect, but I ain't that fucking guy. (laughs) There but for the grace of God go I. Exactly. So I can see that this particular Skeletor is a person who is being exactly who he wants to be and knows exactly what he's not. And I kind of respect that. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you know, you were comparing him to other kind of reality style uh, domesticity hosts. And I feel like, you know, he's not as bad as Gordon Ramsay. So, you know, we can all be thankful for that. (laughs) Gordon Ramsay would quickly find himself at the bottom of a pit on Snake Mountain. Oh, absolutely. No (laughs) patience for that. man. Little to the left and you pull a lever. And goodbye. (laughs) Yes. One of the things, though, that I do think Megan, Bob, and Marissa do really well in their writing is they inject these, like, moments of vulnerability and humanity into Skeletor, basically when he's not paying attention. You know, he'll just, like, say something, and it's so unintentionally revealing of his, like, (laughs) deep-seated fears and anxieties. And it's 
brilliant. I get to those points and I'm like, oh, that is marvelous. He has, without thinking, shown his entire ass in that yes, sentence. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. But it, it's not just that it's embarrassing, or rather, it is embarrassing. He does have <laughs> moments where he embarrasses himself. But there's also just moments where you realize that he's a person. He's literally a cartoon supervillain, but he's not just a cartoon supervillain, you know? Like, <laughs> there's a lot going on under the surface that he's sort of tamping down because he has, like, a reputation to uphold. They're able to come up with such depth for this otherwise really shallow and simple character in a way that I think is just phenomenal. I wholeheartedly agree. All right, Dan, so if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Well, if you would like to, you can look up all of the back episodes of Smash Fiction. As of this recording, we have just released the Smash Bash 3, which is our kind of big, like, end-of-season party where we gather together a bunch of characters that we've used and we do some really fun games with them. That kind of marks the end of the series proper. The other thing we were doing in that feed, Extraordinary League, which is the RPG, we hit the final kind of plot episode, but we have a little bit of an epilogue that's going to be coming down the pipe in the next couple of months. So stick around for that if you are a fan of that show. The feed is going to be active. We have a lot of bonus content that we had released only for patrons, but we're going to be releasing that now that the show's going to be ending. So even if you are just now coming to the show, there's plenty of old stuff for you to catch up on and also plenty of new stuff for you to uh, check out. As well. And then also, if you would like to check out Garden Plots, that's wherever podcasts are found. We have a couple of episodes out already. We have a season planned basically throughout the year 2020. So there's still plenty of content coming there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can. I'm at Dan Mulcairin. I am not good at social media at all. But you can also find and interact with me on Facebook in the Smash Fiction Fan Faction. It's a private group, but we let basically anyone in as long as they're not a jerk. So come on over to any of those places and feel free to chat whenever. There you go. Be told, everyone. Don't be a jerk. Yes, please. Don't do it. We see you. Lucas is there. He will get very upset with you. I've seen it. No, Lucas is a sweetheart. (laughs) Yeah, I only pop in every now and again when things are slow at work. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dan, so thanks so much for coming back, and it's great to have you on again. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been dreaming for so long To find the meaning To understand Thank you very much to Dan Mulcairin for his time. For Dan's signature cocktail, I've taken a few bar staples and one oddball ingredient to make a classic mid-century cocktail. So I present the Nosy Parker. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of Irish whiskey, half an ounce of Benedictine, and half an ounce of extra dry vermouth. Shake vigorously and then strain into a cocktail glass. Garnish with a citrus twist. Whether you're a threat or a menace, here's a drink to steal your nerves. Enjoy!
The Matter View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday evening. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathaview at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. I mentioned it last episode, it's still true, we have to move in like eight days. So, patreon.com slash Lokified. Alternatively, and I don't really mention this on the show, I also have a Ko-fi, so it's ko-fi.com slash Lokified as well, if you'd like to leave a tip in a $3 increment. I've been putting a whole bunch of bonus cocktail recipes up on the Patreon, so I think it's really starting to get good. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a 5-star rating. It helps people find the show. Also, you can leave a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? In fact, there is a brand new review on iTunes, and I thought I'd read it to you now. Radagast42 says, Nostalgia and humanity. What I love about the math of you is the way it keeps surprising me. Surprising me with what I forgot from my childhood that I used to love. Surprising me with the broad diversity of guests. Surprising me with Lucas's knack for setting the tone of his guests with his interstitial song choices and well-thought-out signature cocktails. And surprising me with, no matter what the title of the episode promises, a wonderful glimpse into the humanity of himself and his guests. Also, he does a consistently great job at professionally editing each episode. Please give this podcast a try. It's well worth it. That was really nice. Thanks, Radagast. So if you could be a cool kid like Radagast, you could leave a review too. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one, including this one. It's The Root of All Evil by Dream Theater. Dan is a big Dream Theater fan, and I could not resist the pun in the title. Also, it's pretty good. I update the playlist every week as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure to subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next week? Well, here's the thing. We're moving next week. But luckily, I have a backlog of bonus episodes ready to go, so your feed will not be empty. Also, I have no idea how long it's going to take to set up internet at the new place, and look, there's a lot. Patreon.com slash Lokified. But until then, join me, won't you? The last couple of times I've done recordings, there's been like this weird kind of like rattling noise that has popped up in my recording. I'm mm-hmm. not 100% sure where it's coming from because I can't hear it right now, but you may need to just like keep an eye out. You're sure it's not something to do with the fact that you are now doing a podcast with a skeleton? That may be it. His teeth make a lot of noise. I feel like people who just watch the cartoon don't know his jaw is very noisy. It's all I can do to properly soundproof this thing. I also imagine there's just a consistent low level. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's like when Huey, Dewey, and Louie are sleeping and it's like... (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Very similar. It's the sort of thing where if he's like looking for a word or if he's trying to figure something out, he doesn't say, um, he just says, let's see, 13 plus 7 is... Yeah, 20. You know, it's just that. (laughs) Very much so. Yeah.
Oh, I've just reminded myself because whenever I'm either home in the morning because I'm starting late or have a day off, it's always a fight getting Hero out the door to go to daycare because he presumes that, okay, both of you are here in the morning, therefore it's a weekend and we're going to be hanging out. And it's like, no, dude, you still have to get dressed. And so it becomes, no, I don't, I don't want to change out of my jammies. I want to sit around in my jammies and play with my monster trucks all day. It's like, mm. no, you have to go to school and your mom has to go to work. And Kimiko is the least subtle snorer on the planet. Oh, so really? it's kind of amazing. Like, because she, she's upstairs and I'll, cause I'll usually get up early with Hero because I'm an early riser. I'll call up and I'm like, okay, it's time to get up. And she's like, I'm up. I'm already up. I'm getting up. <laughs> and like mid-sentence. And so I'll like give it a minute and I'll call up again. She's like, what? You just told me. God. I'm like, no, you were asleep. Oh, no, man. I wasn't. How could you know that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> there are people who have been in relationships who have developed like a more genteel snore because they are aware of having to share a common space with someone else and be considerate. Kimiko has not done that because Kimiko has developed a snore that I swear it's like, like I have seen now on the popular blacksmithing show Forged in Fire that I watch a lot. What happens when you try to force a drill press through a brass plate? It's, yeah, it's similar right before that drill bit goes. That, wow. and you can see them like feel that fight back, and the brass starts to smoke. You think maybe <laughs> she's just having like a lot of blacksmith dreams, and is just like kind of voicing her experience from within the dream. It could be. I mean, it's like I've encouraged her to live her truth in her sleep, and she seems to have taken that on board. But what was funny because when we were in Japan, she has this wonderful habit because she works really hard and like really puts a lot of effort into her job that when she goes on holidays it's like her body is like oh oh great so now i have time to be sick awesome right okay so if i've got a two-week holiday i'm gonna spend the second half of it with like a middle ear infection or something awful like that and that happened when we were going overseas to japan it happened when we went overseas to the states but in japan especially it was like she had this horrible like just ongoing like really awful cold and it turned her snores into the black speech of Mordor. It was oh, kind funny. of amazing. <laughs> I, I can't remember. You have been to Japan, yes or no? I have not. Uh, we are planning okay. a trip in a couple of years. Excellent. That will be awesome. The kid's going to love that. I think so. But the hotel rooms are very small. And so Japan is the only place I've been to where going back to, at the time, my shoebox studio apartment felt, felt like a move up, you know? <laughs> and like we were in there, and I was like inches away from my partner, who I love, and who is the mother of my child, and hearing her, like, almost speak in parcel tongue, and then <laughs> hearing it, like, you know, drop three gears, and then kick in like she's starting a leaf blower. Right. And, like, I recorded it. I would never normally record someone sleeping, but... I'm like, I need to show her this or she's not going to believe me. Sure. She's going to think I am just making fun of her. It's like, no, I need to record this for posterity. And she then <laughs> took that recording and like played it for her sister. And her sister was like, yep, I remember that. And so it's wow. really a, a lifelong thing. So right now I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to find the silver lining here. You know, I'm trying to like brainstorm a reason why this is a good thing in your life. Uh -huh. And so far what I've come up with is it may help with insomnia because your brain will want to retreat into unconsciousness as quickly as possible. <laughs> I have an alternative to that. Though. Oh, yeah. You know how you hear people with sort of a generalized anxiety disorder who really worry, like they'll sit there and they'll look at their partner or their child as they sleep and worry that they may have died in their mm -hmm. sleep. Yeah. Right? That's not a worry for me. Yeah, that's true. Like ever. Yeah, if the windows <laughs> are rattling, you know that she's still alive. <laughs> 
It's a nice, clear yes. Everyone yeah. loves a nice, clear yes. I suppose it also kind of makes for an effective burglar alarm in a certain way, in the kind of like proactive sense, you know, like someone is sneaking up to sneak in and take all your valuables, but then they realize that there is some sort of demon living in the house and they decide to go <laughs> next door instead. <laughs> They're just like, not today. I didn't realize Voldemort lived here. I'm just going to tip the fuck out the door. Yeah. It's funny, the one time I've ever had someone break into a house, it was in my first year here in Australia. We were in a third floor apartment that had no air conditioning because you can do that in Australian apartments. It's horrible. And then they don't have any flash screens on the windows. So we would leave the sliding balcony door just slightly ajar to get any kind of breeze into the place so we didn't die. And what happened is someone climbed up three floors on the outside of the balcony to get in and rifle around and steal stuff. And my ex-wife heard it and woke me up and I ran in and I yelled and he went off the balcony. Oh, wow. Dropped what he was doing, went out the door, hit the balcony railing and went over. Dropped about a story and a half and then hit like the edge of the ramp to the parking garage. Oh, Luckily it was made out of some kind of like fiberglass as opposed to concrete because there was a huge then dent in it and then he took off. But when we were calling the cops, the cops were looking and looking down and were like, Huh, so you know if that had been concrete, we would have been scraping him up with a spatula, right? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, and like, sure, he nabbed our iPod or whatever, but yeah, that was, <laughs> it was an odd situation. When he leapt off the balcony, did it make that six million dollar man sound effect? <laughs> You'd think it would, but no. Okay. Clearly, they had underinvested in his bionics. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, you know, the $200 man. <laughs> the 20 bucks in a taco, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the quick stop by Radio Shack, man. 